Welcome to episode number nine of the More Than You Thought podcast. My name is Patrick Moore and I am the host. Today I have the pleasure of sitting down with Chief John Buckman III. Chief Buckman served for 35 years as the fire chief for German Township Volunteer Fire Department. He also was elected the president of the International Association of Fire Chiefs. He served 15 years as the director of Fire and Public Safety Academy for the state of Indiana. And after 9-11, he testified before Congress. Chief Buckman has also published many articles on the subject of firefighting. So without further ado, here we go. Chief uh, Buckman. Well, Patrick, I'm glad to be here. It's uh, always exciting to do these kind of things and hopefully uh, influence a little bit about the people that, or influence some of the people who listen to this to maybe do something. Uh, I was born in Evansville, Indiana some uh, 69 years ago okay. at Deaconess Hospital. Uh, lived on uh, 12th Avenue uh, off of Allen's Lane for 10 years and then uh, Edgewood Drive by Wrights High School for a year and then on Big Cynthiana Road uh, for the rest of my growing up years. Okay. Went to uh, Modern Day High School and uh, had a good time there. I used the name John M. Buckman III because that's my legal name. Uh, in 1999, my father asked me, um, you don't uh, use your full name, why not? And I go, just never thought about it, Dad. And uh, But Dad always used Junior, and uh, my grandpa always used Senior, so I've respected both of them there you go. by always using the third in my full name so it's got it's gotten a lot of com conversation starters yeah. for people going wow you use that all the time I go yep well that's my name <laughs> so what were you involved with in high school any uh, uh, any activities or obviously yeah, I, you you've made it into the fire career you spent a whole your whole working life working in there but yeah. is that where your interest was in the beginning well I, we, I joined the german township fire department when i was in in high school uh, at age 17 and when we but really at modern day, uh, I was hooked into journalism uh, by a teacher named Steve Halby, who was the teacher. And uh, I wanted to take, you know, I wanted to get into journalism and do writing. And then he, Steve Halby, gave me a camera and I started taking pictures. Back in those days, it was black and white. Yeah, so you had to process our own develop film. in the dark room. Yep. They had one at school. Going in the dark room, yep. Uh, so I got to take lots of pictures. And what hooked me on pictures was that I captured a picture of a pie in the face. It's black and white, yeah. it's well lit, and it's in focus. Where was, it, where was that at? It was at Modern Day. It oh. was one of the... Like a pep rally yeah, type pep thing? Rally kind of thing. Okay. I was going to say a skit that they were doing. Yeah. And it's like, wow, this is pretty cool. Yeah. And so I... How does that happen that. with photography? Uh, we we um, kind of went through a phase where we were uh, traveling a lot um, with my kids and stuff. Uh, travel trailer, whatever, and we went to the Grand Canyon. My daughter pulled up the camera and took a picture of the Grand Canyon. Um, um, they got a big waterfall at the Grand Canyon. I forget what they call it. Anyway, uh, and it snapped beautiful, in focus, perfect, a bald eagle flying right in front of the waterfall, and you're just like, she's like eight years old, and you're like, wow, how do you do that? So that was your thing with the pie in the face? Yeah, if you read about the Pulitzer Prize-winning photographers, they will all tell you that they were lucky. Yeah. They were in the right place at the right time, and they had their camera with them. Yeah. <laughs> so, of course, today you don't go anywhere without a camera. Sure. It's, it's on your, your camera phone. Yeah, on your phone. But when you look at those guys, the guys that won those kind of awards, they're just, they're lucky. They yeah. all say that. Yeah. And so every picture that you take is luck. Yeah. You have no idea what you're going to capture. Especially back then. Right there. Oh, sure. Oh, my gosh. You now can you can look it. at it. Well, yeah, and, uh, Try to explain that to you know the younger generations where it wants that instant feedback of what the, the camera, well, or the picture looks like. Imagine back in the early 
days. If you send film off, it'd take a week or two to get uh, it back. Yeah. And then you could get it back in three days. Then you could get it back oh, in one day. The one-hour thing was, like, you huge. You had to pay extra for it. one-hour photo. Yeah, that, you had to uh, pay extra. 60-minute photo was one of the companies here in Evansville yeah. that you could take it in there. I remember doing so, that. And then, of course, today, it's auto, it's digital, automatic. My parents you used to take them over to Kmart and get yep. them probably oh, yeah. done at Kmart. And so, uh, but photography has changed a lot, just like everything else. Uh, the digital part of, of photography makes it so much more accessible. I really wish I would have invented the camera phone because, you know, yeah, right. I'd been making lots of money. Yeah. And then when you look at the transition even of camera equipment, the uh, cameras have changed so much. They used to be huge. Sure. Uh, they you know, used to be that uh, they were very technical. Nowadays, you, know, you can buy a point-and-shoot camera for 400 bucks, and it'll take really good pictures. Uh, then you can, you, know, you can go to the professional camera spending $4,000 sure. for a camera. But the, the $400 camera today was like top of the, top of the line you know, a few years oh, back. Yeah. yeah. But I, I tell people, your, your iPhone, your camera phone, will take as good of pictures in most settings that in a camera that I have has. Yeah. Because if you're 8 to 10 feet away, those camera phones will take awesome pictures. And they'll blow up. They'll, you can oh, turn yeah. them to 11 by 14. So if you really want to blow yeah. them out or blow them up, you can do that. So, so, uh, so you join uh, German Township. What? What um, what was the catalyst to get you to do that? In uh, in 1970, Jim Feckmeister and Nick Gossman, two of my friends, we we rode bikes together, we hung out together, and uh, you were 17. We, 17. Okay. We um, were uh, we'd been we'd you know lived close to each other uh, for years, been friends, and so uh, I think one of the bike things that we rode bicycles. We would ride to New Harmony on our bikes. Oh my gosh! Back in those days. And, you know, today I would let my grandson walk to the neighbor's house without me watching him. I know it. And That's so probably changing the 25 miles from here or 20 miles said, from here. Well, it's about 18 miles yeah. from where we lived yeah. without a cell phone. Sure. And so, you know, if you had trouble, you had to walk up to somebody's house and knock on the door. Yeah. <laughs> but we, we did that. I mean, J.R. and I, we went to uh, Illinois. We rode into Illinois even a couple times just that so why did you guys think that. i want to join the fire department the yeah. volunteer fire department so then i live close to the fire station on cast and drive and we hear the the siren go off and then one of our friends at school uh jim felker was a, his dad was a member so he had got on the fire department mm -hmm. and at that time the rule did not allow a person to join a young person to join whose father was not on the fire department so uh, because we had beer in the fire station uh -huh. Uh, back in those days, okay. beer in the German Township Fire Department went out in 1974. So That's pretty uh, early because I know yeah. that it, it hung in a lot of other places oh. a lot longer than oh, that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, <laughs> a lot of places that uh, you walked into many volunteer fire departments that one soft drink machine might have said XYZ oh, yeah. Cola yeah. and the other one said some other kind of cola, but actually yeah. the one on the left had beer in it. That's right. And, uh, you know, so, I mean, we sold beer for a quarter out of the refrigerator. Yeah. And uh, what... What got it, probably got it rid of it quicker than anything was the money wasn't there. You yeah. Know, they didn't pay for the beer. <laughs> yeah. But um, so we joined and. So you said they had to actually change the rules to let you join. Change the rules to allow us to be a member when we got sponsors. So we had an adult that met with our parents. To let them I will vouch them. for them. Yeah, I'll, I'll watch for them. And so um, Red Oats, who was the assistant fire chief at the time, ran a, a, a gas station down the road from the fire station. Uh, we just wanted to go up to the fire station, clean the trucks, wash them, wax them, do that kind of stuff. You just wanted to and be involved. He gave us a key to the fire station. And so uh, we started doing that, but then we got caught. 
inside the fire station with no adult there. Yeah. So Red got suspended for 30 days, and uh, he came back. So they didn't kick you days. off. The, they didn't kick you off though. They kicked us off. No. It's his, his problem. You know, they knew. I, I think they probably knew the young guys were going to help them do work. And right. Uh, so uh, then Red uh, did. I'll say he probably was back on 30 days, and he started giving us the key again. <laughs> and uh, except this time, we kept somebody at the window. Oh, you're at watch. Okay. A watch man, so go. to speak, sort of like what they were. They letting had you guys uh, make fire runs and stuff like that back they then. They let us make fire runs, but we could not go in burning buildings. Okay, uh, we were only exterior firefighter support fire until fire. you were 21. Until you're 18, yeah, until we were 21. Okay, today it's 18 because OSHA says at 18 you can do it. Sure, and uh, but you know, we 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 literally that's what we wanted to do, and we we learned real early on that. Uh, this fire department was about training. Mm -hmm. It was one rule, at the, even in those days, that about training. So we became, you know, very interested in training. Uh, we went to lots of training. There was lots of times you get offered to go to a class in Vincennes, sure. uh, Jasper, sure. uh, some uh, Owensboro, Kentucky. You were excited, like right? We would go. We had the time and we had the desire. And did you think this might be your career? That was that was the thought. My okay. uh, grandfather was involved with the Republicans. He was the chief of the meter police at that time. That was back in the day when they carried guns. Okay. The meter policemen carried guns. I didn't guns. know that. I have grandpa's gun. Yeah. yeah. And his holster. <laughs> and uh, and it's, uh, so that's like, got to, it's a, that's got to be like 80-year-old gun. Yeah. But um, so that was the plan. 21, I could uh, get ready to go on the Evansville Fire Department. Uh, seven days before I was 21, I was on a, a tree fire with this fire department fell off a ladder, fell about 32 foot. Oh my gosh. Broke my left arm in four places, fractured my back. Oh. Um, I don't have a funny bone in my left arm. And uh, How long and, were you in the hospital? Uh, I don't remember how long I was in the hospital. I know I wore the back brace for six months. Oh, wow. And it wasn't, it was not the, the like rubber band kind of back brace. Yeah. It was a metal back brace that came up all the way down to the groin, up to the chest oh to keep me from bending over. And uh, mom had to help me put it on because it had a big old six-inch band in the back. So not only are you busted up, but, like, now your dream of fire yeah. professional yeah. firefighting or whatever. Back in, back in those days, to become a career firefighter, you basically had to be 100% healthy. No broken bones because of the chances of, uh, you know, going on a pension sure. because of that previous injury. So that was out. Uh, so, you know, I didn't really have a thought about what I wanted to do other than being a firefighter. So it's like, you know, I worked for Faultless Castor for a while. I went to work for a company called Vindal, did some supervision, uh, delivering food and filling candy machines, yeah. different factories. And well, this uh, would have been, was this in the 70s or 80s? This would have been 74, 75, okay. Okay. probably up until, uh, I went to work for the state fire marshal in 84. Okay. What yeah. would you do there? Uh, well, this, again, sort of funny is that um, I knew the state fire marshal, Bill Goodwin. He's a volunteer firefighter from Angola and knew him from the Indiana Volunteer Firefighter Association. Okay. So one day I, I asked him, I said, uh, you got any job openings? He goes, nope, don't have any openings. I said, well, you know, if you ever have a job opening, keep me in mind. And uh, so I was actually in his office. Yeah. And I'll say three or four years later when he goes, hey, uh, I got a job opening in your area. I go, really? He goes, yeah, the fire inspector down there is going to retire. He said, you want the job? You, you know, go through the state pooling system and mm -hmm. apply because at the, states, at the state you applied for a job, you had to get a certain number of points okay. to get 
sent to the agency that you were applying for a job oh, okay. for. So not everybody got, you know, if you'd have 100 applicants and only 20 people get sent over because okay. you didn't have experience, whatever, education, that sort of thing. So uh, got the job. Nice. The funny that was part 1984? Was, that was about, yeah, 1984, June, I think June 8th, 1984. But here's the funny part. So I, my wife had drove me up there because they told me I'd get a car. And so she went back to Evansville. And so I come in, and the fire marshal interviewed inter, I say interviews me. He um, uh, gives me a short, like maybe an hour orientation. Yeah. He goes, I got to go to the executive director's office. I got a meeting. Charles Coffey was the executive director of the Department of Fire and Building Services. Uh, the fire marshal never came back. <laughs> <laughs> he went on a 30-day leave of absence, and then he left. Oh, yeah. So, so you're up there we, without a car. So here we are at the end of my day. I'm I have I'm like, so I go to the assistant fire marshal. His name was Jerry Dunn. Yeah. And I said, um, I'm sort of at a loss here. I don't have a car. I was told I had a car. Yeah. <laughs> I had room that I'd have a hotel. I'll be up here for all week. I'll do training. And he walked me over. We were on the uh, Meridian Street. We're on the 11th floor. He walks me over to the end of the hallway, looking out the window. He says, you see that tan car down there? Here's the keys. That's your car. You can go get you a hotel, and we'll pay for it. Okay. And so uh, so then I did have training that week, learning the fire and building codes oh, okay. and that sort of thing. Nice. And, uh, but, yeah, the, the fire marshal never came back. Then we had a new fire marshal. Larry Bozell became wow. the state fire marshal. And so, so things Went very well. It's a revolving door. Yeah, it was a. Larry was a fire marshal for a while, and then we actually had fire marshals that actually. Good one. He was there for like ten years. We had fire marshals that stayed for a pretty long time. So the only one, only one guy did not stay very long. He was only there about a year. So you're doing that, and you're um, you were elected the fire chief of the yep. German Township. Uh, 1970. Let's see, 35 years and about <laughs> 74. I was elected by the older members. Okay. The board of, this fire department is unique in that we, uh, the board of directors nominates the fire chief and the assistant chief, and there's no nominations from the floor. Yeah, that is odd. The membership votes yes or no, and it takes 75% to override the board of directors' recommendations. So if 75% vote for another person, yep. they sorry, that, it's two-thirds. Or however. Yeah. yeah, however. But yeah, so they, they would vote no Okay. because they didn't like the guy that the okay. board nominated or the gal okay and uh today german township has a female fire chief and a female assistant chief okay and uh, she is the 11th fire chief wow for this fire department and we're 60 years old well let's jump up you uh you were elected for another position right international yep. association of fire chiefs the um uh, in uh, 1988 i went to a meeting in in, in uh, loudon county virginia near washington dc the board of directors here approved me to go for they were reorganizing the International Association of Fire Chiefs Volunteer Committee. And um, so they let me go. Billy Goldfeder was the chairman. And then uh, I became the vice chairman. And a couple years later, I became the chairman of this. At that time, we, we first started, we were a committee. Then we became a section, which made us like official. We had authority, we had power, that sort of thing. Right. We could do things. We had members paying dues. Okay. And um, so. I, you know, I became the chair of that, and then in 1996, I became the, on the board of directors of the International Association of Fire Chiefs, and then in 1999, I ran for second vice president of the International Association of Fire Chiefs, 
and uh, got elected. Uh, now, weren't you only like the second, second volunteer, volunteer to ever be elected? To be elected to that position. Okay. Uh, the first one was Rocky Rockenbach out of Grace Lake, Illinois. He was a uh, Chevrolet car dealer okay. and a volunteer firefighter. Okay. And uh, so uh, I had a, had a good had a campaign going. I was prepared <laughs> to make it, uh, you know, travel the country. So was that like all the members that. vote by proxy? or All members vote by uh, secret ballot, so to speak, but yeah. by, by proxy. And uh, I'm sorry, at that time, we were voting in person at the conference. Oh, okay. So, but you had to have name recognition. Well, I'd, I'd been writing articles for a while, so my name recognition was out there. Uh, had a gentleman named Jacques Denal, who from Canada, who was running against me, and, uh, but he died of a heart attack during our campaign. Good news, bad news. Yeah, the, and the, the, the joke then was that, uh, oh, Buckman had the guys from Long Island New York, oh, come yeah. up there and uh, <laughs> take care of his competition. Right. And uh, but you know, Jock died of a cardiac arrest and un unbeknownst heart condition that he had. And good guy. And I just relayed this story to the current president of the International Fire Chiefs is from Canada. Yeah. And he never heard that story. So h tell me how that works a little bit. You kind of alluded to it. So you're you're a four year commitment. It's a four year commitment from second vice president, first vice president president and then past president. So you're elected each one of those or you're just elected and then you go in succession? No, you're elected every year. Okay. And, uh, and you're not elected to past president. That's all. Yeah, that. yeah, yeah. So, uh, but yeah, so I was, I ran every year. Usually nobody runs against you for first or president. Okay. Uh, once I, you've actually. Yeah. Once you're in the, in the, the loop, so to speak, you're going to, you're going to make that. Right. And uh, so we're, uh, so I was lucky that uh, I got to do that. I was, uh, Sworn in on August 18th of uh, 2001. Yeah. And then uh, September 11th happened a few days later, and uh, yeah. which changed all the things that I wanted to do. Uh, I was going to be pushing safety. I had endorsed the uh, fire, di fire dynamics research programs that NIST was doing that's now being done by the Firefighter Safety Research Institute. And um, I was going to travel around and try to get firefighters to, to get into life safety. Changed. It, it changed. Yeah. It changed for everybody. It certainly did. And um, I was sitting at home on my, at my desk at home with my feet up on the desk and talking to Chief Richard Marinucci out of Farming Hills, Michigan. He tells me, look at, turn on CNN and here's this big fire. And I said, there's no way <laughs> that big a fire could get started during the daylight hours. Well, right. a couple minutes later, we then see the second plane right. hit, the, hit the second tower. So um, it was... Uh, all things changed. I was actually getting ready to go to the airport to get on a plane to go to Delaware for the Delaware Volunteer Firefighter Association meeting. And then, uh, so obviously, you're not going to fly anywhere. Right. And uh, all the planes were grounded. I'm on the phone with the IFC, the executive director of the International Fire Chiefs. He's out in Colorado. So, you know, neither one of us are in the office. But uh, there was a guy named John Eversall who was the uh, deputy chief for Chicago Fire Department, a hazmat guy. Mm -hmm. has, he had a hazmat committee meeting. So we had four people, very highly skilled, competent uh, leaders that we deployed to New York, the Pentagon, and uh, to, the, to, the, uh, to Pennsylvania. And then uh, we had one of them stay in the office there. So we basically, that was before we had uh, regional strike teams or task forces like we now have in most states where you can deploy resources on a regular basis. We didn't have instant management teams, anything like that. So uh, we actually, the International Fire Chief deployed a team out of Massachusetts to come down to New York to offer assistance to them from an incident management standpoint. 
Uh, even this event overwhelmed New York. Yeah. Uh, even the Pentagon. At the Pentagon, we were helping them do incident management. We were requesting qualified battalion chiefs from 200 miles away. Right. Because you got to keep this thing running 24 hours a day. It takes lots of staff and lots of members or lots of leadership. And you can't have somebody show up that doesn't understand how to keep an incident running. Right. And so we uh, were doing that sort of thing. The, the field in Pennsylvania didn't need much help. Right. There wasn't a whole lot there to, to you know, you weren't going to. So how are you, how are you determining who would come in and who would go out? I mean, is that, is that part of what you were doing or? It's part of what the office was doing. Okay. We, we got phone calls. I yeah. got phone well, calls. They're, they're wanting to get help just anywhere yeah. they can, right? They, you know, wanted, we put out a, a letter first day, do not self-deploy. We yeah. do not need everybody driving their car just showing wherever up. and just showing up. Uh, we, and there were a lot of people that did that, but it, it's not the way. And I remember that time we didn't know if other attacks would happen. Right. And so it's like, you you know, you move everybody over to this side of the country. You know, we, ju we just didn't know. It was right. it was a scary time, you know, for. You know, it was it was, it was sort of funny. I, I, I remember when I left the house, but I left the house to get out of the house, and I thought, ooh, I probably should go back and get my gun in case we're sure. invaded. Well, I mean, you just... I'm in Indiana. Right. It's going to be a long time before they invade Indiana. Right. But that's the, the kind of think, thinking that you had there. It's like, this may not be over. Right. And, you know, do you want to protect yourself or you just want to not have anything to protect yourself? Right. I interviewed uh, Joe Bassmeyer, yep. and, um, I, and I didn't know this, but we were talking about watch, like being on watch at the firehouse. And I, and I always thought that was, you know, just so you have somebody up or, you know, whatever. And he was like, no, that, that came about in World War II. They had to have somebody up because they thought the Japanese were going to... Might, they might come and sabotage the firehouse. Right. I'm like, wow. Yeah. Okay. Well, that that the International Fire Chiefs, we kept the office open 24 hours a day for like five days. Yeah. And so we created a resource list, and you know people started calling, say they offered help, and this is how many people we could send, that sort of thing. So uh, we never really got a request for a large amount of help, uh, other than from a management standpoint. Mm -hmm. uh, the FDNY. Uh, what is not a well thought about or not, not a well known fact is the uh, forestry department sent people to New York to help them manage the incident. Wow. Because the forestry, they run big incidents. Sure, all they the do time. a lot of forest fires. They had experience. And, you know, the reaction from these FDNY guys is like, what are you doing here? Yeah. <laughs> You're in that green uniform? Yeah. We are not forestry. Right. But, both sides. Well, they're, they're really, I mean, their their expertise in that particular scene was probably organizational management. Right. That's what um, it was about. It wasn't yeah. about excavating. What about putting out fires? It's about we can help you manage this multi-week event. Oh, yeah. Because most fires are out in 12 hours. Yeah. Now, you know, I should say 98% of our fires are out in one hour. Right. Yeah. And then 2% might be out in, you know, three or four hours. And so we're not used to running incidents for this long period of time. But... The FDNY uh, did accept the outside coaching and uh, helped them get organized. And you can imagine, back in those days, the turf battles. Oh yeah. Uh, who's in charge? What's in there? What you know? What are we trying to get out of there? Uh, just there were lots of turf battles. Yeah. So I mean, organizations like you know the one you were running and, and many other organizations were just trying to bridge the gap from the needs. Um, and then the people that could that could help, right. I'm assuming. Well, and you know, out of, out of every disaster, there's something good happens. Uh, the National Incident Management System, NIMS, came out of that. The uh, 
task force concept in states that you can deploy resources in states. FEMA, uh, through several disasters, FEMA started to pre-deploy resources now, so when they think there's a tornado coming or a, a hurricane or something, you pre-deploy resources. So a lot of things were learned as a result of September 11th that help us today. And, and just in Vanderburg County, as an example, you know, we have the District 10 Task Force, which has resources mm -hmm. that were deployed here when we had the tornado sure. hit the Eastbrook Mobile Home Park. We deployed some of those resources. And uh, so, so good things came out of September 11th as it relates to managing incidents today. Yeah, well, uh, they got, you know, FEMA and they put a, a, a federal representative, right, in, in every county. Well, the district concept, yeah, yeah. has that, yeah. So uh, the, the EMA directors, like in the state of Indiana, right. uh, our EMA directors are very involved in most local fire and police organizations. Mm -hmm. uh, they have resources. They have access to things that maybe some police departments don't have, especially many volunteer fire departments won't have access to some equipment. Right. Because, that, you know, it, it's, it's when you have a career event. Sure. And, you know, there, there's not that many career events, but when you have a career event, you're not doing it with your own fire department. Right. Uh, and so you have to look at what are resources are out there. Fire chiefs today need to know what resources are available to them on the local level, a regional level, and then a state level, and could be at a federal level. The interesting thing about the fire department is um, you can write all the policies and, and general orders and all those things, uh, but the, each one of those need to say something like, or use your best judgment. <laughs> I mean, because it's like, it's not like we're doing a manufacturing process. It's not like you're teaching somebody how to put a shingle on a roof. You're trying to handle very dynamic situations right. that nobody can appreciate until it's over. Right. Because you don't know exactly what's going on, you know, until the whole thing's over. Um, and you take something like 9-11 and it's like, you have, of course, massive loss of life. You have buildings, you know, catastrophe. You have logistical issues. And then you think we could be attacked, you know, other places or, or they could attack that place again once all the responders are there. Right. And so that's a, I don't say a nightmare, but I mean, it's kind of a nightmare. It, I mean, you're, you're going a, off the cuff, right? I mean, you're is, just. It is a nightmare. And, and you can't do this by yourself. You can't manage that incident where every day we at fire department level, we manage incidents by ourselves. Sure. One person in charge. Well, sure. we'll go back to Eastbrook Mobile Home Park. We had three people. We did have Knight Township. They were ultimately in charge, but I was part of the command team and uh, Nathan Stormer was part of the command team. He represented EMS. Mm -hmm. And we ran that incident together because the incident commander can't go to all the meetings sure. that they need to go to. So you send a representative yeah. knowing that even though I was there and I'm speaking on behalf of the Knight Township incident commander, and he trusted me, you got to trust those people that right. they'll make good decisions, but you can't do those kind of incidents by yourself. And, and so that's, again, one of those things that, that came out of that is that Yes, you'll be, there'll ultimately be somebody in charge, but there's now what's called a unified command. Yeah. Where police, fire, EMS, and other, EMA, other organizations, they're, they're like the overall management team. Unified, but we're all talking the same language. We, we have the same right. plan. We know where we're going to go and how we're going to get it done. But Is, going back to September 11th, yeah. when you look at, uh, you know, yes, I had the privilege of going to the hole at FD in, in New York City. Uh, several times got to got to go there yes it was it was amazing it was overwhelming it was emotional uh, but I, I, I this will be egotistical but what I'm most proud of I testified before Congress five times yeah 
pretty lucky, and not, most sure. fire chiefs never get to testify for United States Congress. Right. I got to do it not once, but I got so to do it So how did that come times. about? Uh, it was about legislation, NIMS. Mm-hmm. Well, I was just going to say, when I was waiting for a break in the conversation, but when we were talking about it, I go, this is what uh, created the NIMS system. Right, absolutely. And then uh, we proposed some legislation. Um, the internet, the, there's seven big organizations, and they all had a meeting one day. And I knew they were having a meeting. I was, I was in Evansville, and so our lobbyist calls me after me and goes, oh, we have, we have these six legislative agenda items. I said, no, we don't. We have seven. No, we agreed, six. I go, you know, Alan, you didn't call me. I have my cell phone with me all the time. You didn't call me. We have seven. What's the seventh? We're going to propose they hire firefighters. He goes, well, we talked about that, but we decided no. I go, well, I don't, I don't care. I to, to, told the executive director only two times that I had to say this to him in my year. I am the president, and we will do what I want to do. And so called the IFF, Harold Shapeberger, mm-hmm. and he's all on for it. He's well, all sure. for it. <laughs> in two days, he had Senator Chris Dodd out of Connecticut sponsor the legislation, and we created the legislation called SAFER Act which is about staffing firefighters. It was a grant program. Mm-hmm. It doesn't staff them forever. It staffs them on a temporary basis. But that program is still in existence today. Was that kind of like they did the same thing for law enforcement, like they'd pay so much of their salary the first year and then a little bit less, a little bit less, a little bit less? It was, it was a three-year program. Yeah. And so you, you got 100%, 66 and two-thirds, and then 33%, and then the fourth year you didn't get any. They hired like, what, 75,000 yep. firefighters? And even, and even But the law has been changed today in that, uh, you know, you, you – you can hire more people. Uh, I spoke at a. I, I didn't tell anybody this. I, you know, because again, nobody really has to know. I had to tell the executive director I am the president. Right. But sometimes you just have to do that. Right. And uh, I did. I told the story speaking at a banquet in Pleasant View, Tennessee. The first time I ever told this story, and they didn't even know it. And so the lady who was coordinated comes up to me afterwards. He goes, "There's three people who want to come up here and thank you." I said, "Why?" They have a job here because oh, of you. Wow. So I'm at Terre Haute speaking at a graduation with 12 firefighters. And the chief is telling me that, well, they, we got these people hired off the SAFER grant. And I said, you know how the SAFER grant started? He goes, no. And Jeff was a good friend of mine. And I, so I told him. And so when he got up to speak, he told them, "Okay, here's the guy that proposed the legislation. Now, the IFF took a hold of it sure. and ran with it. That's, that's who we hired. And then the law was changed also to help volunteers to recruit new volunteers. And so an example now, this state has almost a million-dollar grant to help recruit volunteers. They have 10 departments they're working with to develop programs, develop marketing material, so that you know, we can increase the recruitment of volunteers using grant funding. Okay. So let's, let's back up a little bit to... Uh, 9-11 when you went up there what was your first experience like and how how long after the attack did you make it to New York <laughs> yeah I had guys calling me going going to New York going I said no no not going to New York I don't need to go to New York they don't need me up there right uh, it was like 10 days okay uh, because you know it would have been a big deal people you know they, they need to take care of their business and uh, went up, met the commissioner, Thomas Von Essen, and uh, he took us on a tour, took us around a few places, showed us some of the things, and, um, you know, we went down in the hole and, um, you know, 
talked to some of the firefighters. Sure. And, uh, met a guy named Lee Ielpi, I-E-L-P-I. Uh, his son was killed there, and uh, he became a, a, a big advocate for uh, health issues, cancer issues, sure. as a result of uh, the firefighter breathing in all that dust. Uh, I got to go to the Pentagon. Now, people would say, well, you don't have, I don't have pictures of that. You're right. I, the Pentagon, you didn't, weren't allowed to take pictures. Right. But I wanted to go stand in that hole, yeah. in that wall. I got to do that. Because I, I just, how do you convince somebody to fly a plane full of people right. into a building, whether it's the World Trade Center or the Pentagon or the White House or sure. Congress, whichever one Whatever. that third one was supposed to be at. And I stood there and thinking, what's going through your brain? I don't right. know the answer to that question, but I, I just sort of wanted to stand there and sort of experience that thinking, you got two, 300 people behind you, Sure. They know you're going down, and you're doing this for what reason? So I met, um, um, I spent about eight years in the military, and uh, four years active, I've spent four years as a civilian. And um, I met people that were in the Pentagon when it got hit. And every year they did a, a little memorial on 9-11, and that's fascinating to talk to them. And also, um, I got to go up and work in the, uh, that area, and to stand right there, and of course, you can see if you go there now, you can right. see the Pentagon. You can always see the new section of wall, and then right there where it hit, there's the memorial. It's hard to describe unless you've been there. And I've thought the same thing you're just talking about. You stand there, the Pentagon to your back, and I would look across, and you're looking towards the mall, you know, the DC, right. and you think, what would it be like for a commercial jetliner to be coming at me right now? I mean, on purpose. Yeah, absolutely Not crazy. Not by accident. Yeah. On purpose. Right. Yes. What? What brainwashing power do I have that <laughs> to get you in a room and convince you to do something? And, and it, and it's not just, you know, I mean, there's been um, Jim Jones events, and not just always um, people of other countries, sure. you know, ethnic ethnic sure. backgrounds, different. Yeah, like Timothy that. McVeigh. I mean, there's been uh, yeah, you know, been those but, things. Uh, those kind of people that convince those people. That's the you know that's the thing you need to do for right. whatever reason. Um, so. This also led into a lot of changes, like we talked about. Um, NIMS was one of them, um, trying to make companies and not companies, but different fire departments work well with each other. What, like you said, there's always good to come out of something. What else do you think has been a positive to come out of such, you know, a disaster? I think NIMS is probably a good one. Um, I, yeah. Well, the, the yeah. Plain talk on the radio because yeah. you have other people coming. You got jargon that nobody knows what they're talking about. When you look at the national incident management system, okay, we, we rewrote the federal response plan to a national response plan, which was a, really about perspective. And what it made, uh, it wasn't about a federal response, it was about a national response starting at the local level and mm -hmm. the state level, and the federal level would be the, the third partner there. So that changed the philosophy. A guy named Mike Byrne, who was wor worked with FEMA, uh, helped us do that because people expected in the old and the old way of doing things that FEMA would come in and take over. Right. I mean, I remember being told that FEMA comes in with blank checks and they'll just write you a check for $10,000. <laughs> I thought, are you crazy? Yeah. Nobody has that authority. And uh, so when you look at that, uh, additionally was a change in philosophy that FEMA is a partner, not a takeover specialist. They will bring resources, and they have resources. When you look, one of the things that, that I found as a result of, of tornadoes in Indiana is that they actually have a construction company under contract 
to rebuild the school in areas infected by, impacted by a tornado. Wow. It's the same company, management company. They're not the electricians, mm -hmm. the plumbers. They're the management company, sort of like NIMS. It's the management of it, you know, the, the tactical. Like you don't part. need the, yeah, you don't need that level. You need somebody overarching to pull all these capable people yeah. together. Blueprints, plans, going through the state bureaucracy, getting all this done, going to the unions, getting the locals all on board, saying this is what we're going to need. You guys got to step up because it's so important in a tornado, in a, in a, where a school is destroyed, it is so important to get that school back in business. It's, it's just so healthy for the, for the community because right. the kids have a place to go and they get back to some sense of normalcy. And uh, it's, it's just amazing. They, uh, FEMA also has a company, actually he is from Evansville, this company, uh, lives in Florida, uh, Tarpon Springs, Florida. I met him by accident. I'm standing at a house next to him and he's doing a fundraiser with cars, old cars, and so I'm over there taking pictures. So like the next year, I got all the pictures on his, can on his uh, calendar. But he had, and runs a trucking company that brings resources, pre-deployed resources, or you know, gets all this stuff and hauls it to there. And so you know, again, that's another thing that FEMA did is they don't wait on individual truck companies. They have a person that manages it who can call the different trucking companies in different areas mm -hmm. to say, I need 10 trucks, here's where I need them at, and yeah. this is what we're paying, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, you know, AMR does that here in Evansville. Uh, they're part of FEMA's contract now. When events happen, AMR deploys resources, ambulances, and staff to certain areas so that they can handle the, uh, the additional EMS calls. So there are lots of good things that came out yeah. of 9-11. Of lots of bad things happened, but progress happened. And, it's, and it still works today. I mean... With every program out there, it needs to be changes made. But keeping things current, FEMA has a good reputation for that, and I think most states have a good reputation that we got to keep things current. And, of course, when the feds give money to the state, the states give money to the locals, then the locals got to do work to get that money. Right. It's not like all this money is just given out and you go, well, you don't have to do anything for this money. We'll give you a million dollars. No, you have to update your local disaster plan. You have to update your resource plan, right. all those kind of things. When you update this, you will get a certain amount of grant money. Yeah. Um, so segue a little bit. Tell me about your book. My book. Well, the book is uh, <laughs> uh, it's over 10 years in the making. It's, it's I was going to say, so yeah. I know this is not like a, uh, like a two-week project, and that's why yeah. I say you could fit this in anywhere because I guarantee it took a long time. It, yeah, I I have the original stuff that I was writing. Uh, I called it bits and pieces. Uh, it's not a book full of paragraphs. It's not a book full of multiple pages you got to read. It's bulleted. And it, because it's, it's, I wanted people to not have to read the thing. I, I read lots of books. And, and one of the weird things, I, I read a book is I don't read the book on page one. I get a book, I open it up. Whatever page I open it up to is where I start reading. Okay, that is kind of odd. Because... <laughs> Reality is books are boring. Yeah. Unless you really you want to get down to the point you right now want to learn. Right. And yeah. so my point is I may read five pages from what I opened it today, and then tomorrow I'll read five other pages from a different place. But if it really excites me, if I'm really interested, then maybe I'll read ten pages. So for me, of course, maybe, you know, my personality, type A personality, maybe I have some attention deficit as usually <laughs> well, like many firefighters. Right. That, uh, so I, I read books in short burst okay and so I wanted to make this book something that could be read I wanted to make book that they could use uh, 
And so it's bulleted format. It's broken up into different categories. I talk about kids. I talk about parents. It's not just all about the fire service because I, you know, I've, I was at a basketball game for my grandson on Saturday, and this will be a quote in the next book, is that um, when the coach loses his cool, it's not going to be a good – he's not setting a good example for the kids. Yeah. Because uh, the, refer, the referee turned to coach on Saturday and said, I've had enough of you, and the coach jumped up and got in his face. Oh, wow. Which the, the, re, the referee then uh, called for a technical. I'm surprised he didn't kick him out. Yeah. But he didn't. But my point is that – that is those kind of things. If you're reading that book and you're coaching your child, uh, then maybe you'll remember that. Is I'm not supposed to do that, or it's like, and I, I, I do this about kids because it relates also to, to leaders in the fire service. Is that when your kid is out there playing whatever sport they're playing, trying to do something that they enjoy doing, do you think they're actually not doing it as good as they can do it for that minute in time? Right. So if the parent yells at them. Yes. You're not helping that kid improve right. at all. Just like in the fire service, when the when a captain or a chief talks to you, if they're yelling at you, you're not going to change. Right. They need to coach you, right. and coaching is encouraging you. And so, I try to be positive. And I'm not saying I was perfect as a fire chief. I I readily admit, for the t first ten years of being fire chief, I didn't have this kind of philosophy. It was like, do it, because I tell you to do it. Right. It's the rule. It's black and white. It's written on paper. We'll enforce it. That's, that's not reality today. It's a partnership between firefighters and officers today. Yes, when we're on a fire scene, you will do what you're told right. when you're told to do it. But 99% of the time that officers interact with firefighters, it's at a station. It's in a non-emergency kind of situation. And so I tried to bring those kinds of things out in the book. I'll talk about motivation. You know, so talk is it a mainly like a leadership life. book or is it a... It's all the above. Okay. It's, it's you know... It, a memoir? No, it's not. It's, I, I tell a few stories about me, but okay. it's, it's really just different quotes, things I've listened to, things that people have said that are things that have happened mm -hmm. that I'll pick things up or make notes. My dad taught me to make notes, mm -hmm. uh, and so I make notes today. I do most everything digitally, but, you know, I used to be a daytimer user, and I would write things. I'd fill up So you spent 10 out. years kind of just pulling together your notes, and you're putting it in a book? or Yep. yep. It's, um, uh, you know, I, I talk about training. I talk about the role of instructors, how important it is to have good instructors, how you select good instructors, uh, how you manage people. Mm -hmm. um, talks about power, influence. Uh, most people think, oh, you get that gold badge, you have power. <laughs> no, you don't. You actually, you know, I, I believe the more, uh, Gary Ludwig, who's the fire chief in Champaign, Illinois, is the first one I saw this, is tra the traditional um, ranking system is a pyramid, mm -hmm. and the fire chief is at the top. Well, Gary actually flipped that thing around and puts the fire chief at the bottom and everybody else above them, yeah. above the fire chief. And I really believe that that is the philosophy the fire chief has to realize today. The fire chief works for the citizens yeah. and the members. And if they forget that, they're going to have trouble. And so I'm trying to put little quotes in there to make you realize this is what you should be doing. You know, when you want, to, when you want somebody to change, you can't beat them over the head with a baseball bat. Yeah. You're going to have to sit down with a wet piece of spaghetti <laughs> and slap them on the shoulder right. and say, pay attention to me. But the, the important part is i got to get their attention. Today, people have, depending on what book you're reading, 6 to 15 seconds is attention span. 
So if I can't hook you to pay attention after six seconds, I can speak for the next 30 minutes and you're not going to listen. I can think, like, as a company officer, I always, uh, you know, of course, I learned a lot of this in the military, but, you know, I always think of you as a facilitator. You just want to make sure that, that your crew has the everything, the tools, equipment, knowledge, you know, safety equipment, you know, whatever it is to achieve that task. Yeah, you're, you know, when you think about it in the fire service, in a, in a, a, company, a company setting, you have one officer and three firefighters. Right. You got a driver, so you have two firefighters that are going to go in. If you have to tell them everything to do, you're not going to be very effective. Right. And as a leader, your job is to facilitate their skill development, enhancement, and improvement. Because without their skills, you're nothing. Right. You 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 can you can order them to go in the in the front door, but if they can't get their air pack on, right. they can't. I can think um, as a young lieutenant that uh, your crew can make you look pretty bad too. <laughs> yeah, I remember. Even, I don't know, lieutenant. What should we do? <laughs> remember, there's more of them than there are of you. That's right. That's and so when you right. look at a fire chief in a large career fire department, uh, volunteer our career. There's one fire chief. And then there's 20 or 30 or 200 people out there that like to tear you apart, like to embarrass you. Sure. Uh, you know, most of our people, I will say this about fire chiefs. I think fire chiefs, um, we got to get out from behind the desk. We spend too much time in the admin part of the, of, the, of the business. That fire chiefs have got to be out there talking to the people. Jack McElfish, a friend of mine who was in, uh, he was in like five different fire departments. And uh, he told me that the first Friday of every month, he would go out and visit fire stations. Yeah. Now, he was in charge of multiple fire departments, multiple stations. Mm -hmm. So he didn't make every fire station every month. Right. But at least the guys were out there. Now, the challenge for fire chiefs when they get out there is when the guys tell them something, they got to listen and they got to do it. Because if you don't do it. Kind of a double-edged sword. Right. It's, <laughs> it's like if you go out and ask a questions, you better be prepared to right. answer them. So I think uh, the fire department today, uh, we're missing an opportunity for reframing or reimagining the fire department. Uh, there are things that we should be doing, we could be doing, that we're not doing. We could be doing a whole lot more public education, a whole lot more fire prevention kind of material. But the fire chief's not motivated to do that, in my opinion, because they're behind their desk too much, managing the budget. Yes, yeah. we got to manage the budget, but most firefighters want to do something that is challenging and is worthwhile, and they'll see a benefit for it. Firefighters hate change so much. When you said that you guys had the first lime green truck, I just cringed. <laughs> and I think of everything like that as like, well, we should change this. I'm like, oh, I don't want to change anything. But yet, people want change, but they don't want to do change, you know? Well, Chief Alan Brunacini from Phoenix said it best. Firefighters don't like change, and they don't like the way things are. That's right. That's, like, That's right. You know, the fire chief's in a no-win situation. Well, absolutely. And, and, absolutely. But, but we have got to have change. Yeah. Uh, the volunteer fire service has got to have change. I was asked by uh, Dan Eggleston, who's in Alba, Albemarle County, uh, Virginia, like three or four months ago, he says, uh, you used to say don't pay volunteers. 20 years ago, you told me don't pay volunteers. He said, do you still believe that today? I go, no. He goes, why? I go, you have to pay volunteers. It's a part-time job. Yeah. And I said, you can pay them in a variety of ways. You can pay them on a stipend. You can pay per call, mm -hmm. for training, per run. Uh, 
that sort of well, thing. Well, the requirements of what you ask of them is going up a lot too. Right. Now, see, I, I would tell you it's not the requirements. There's no more state requirements. It's that when you buy equipment, there are more requirements. So when German Township just bought what I call the thumper machine to do oh, CPR, sure. yeah. <laughs> well, there's training requirements to go with that. You can't buy that equipment without having the training. So it's not like the government made us buy that. Yeah. We're, we're having limited staffing. My buddy says that the ER hates those because they save too many people. Right. But, <laughs> oh, we hope so. I we know. hope so. I know. It. Uh, but in a volunteer world, especially during the day with two part-time people sure. at German Township here, maybe one volunteer trying to do CPR all the way to Deaconess Hospital is a long time to do it. Well, now it's one person and the thumper, and the other two people can stay back here in the township. But we just bought two of those, one with, with some grant money. Mm -hmm. And but that's that's an example of how if you didn't have that equipment, you wouldn't have the training requirements because it's like the defibrillator that we got years ago. Sure. The most important thing that you for the defibrillators, you know where it's at on the truck. Yeah. The second most important thing is, you know, where the on button is. Right. If you don't know the answer to those right. two questions, it doesn't matter. And, you know, because when you put the pads on, just get the pads on. Them. It doesn't really matter where the pads go. Just get them on. It. So the. Biggest two things is where's it at and where's the on button and how do you get the pads put on somebody. And so it's those kind of things. When fire departments buy more equipment, they buy a new truck, it's got new equipment on it. Or, you know, today we buy trucks just like at Evansville, I'm sure your uh, engine one, they have the automatic pump operation, you know, where you set the pump and it'll, you set it at 150 PSI, it'll keep it at 150 PSI so right. the pump operator doesn't have to worry about it. Right. There's training requirements to do that on how to do that. You know, the first, the first big fire we had after we got our new engine, which is about two years ago, I went to be in command uh, or to be safety officer or something. When I get there, there's only two firefighters on there because they were sleeping at the station, and they let, they let me I'm gonna operate the pump. Well, I've operated the pump forever. But on this truck, the throttle on all the old trucks goes counterclockwise. Okay, yeah. On this new truck, the throttle goes clockwise. Okay. And I'm sitting there cranking on that That's thing, a, left, you know, trying sorry. to get it. Finally, go back up to, uh, to go up to the guy on Nick, who's on the hose line. Go. What Nick, is going on with this? I can't get water out of it. He comes down here and starts throttling up. It's like, oh my God, it's that simple. Right. But there was a chance, and I didn't make training We're just on the push new push buttons truck. now. Up, right. Down. Yeah. I didn't make training on the new truck. Mm -hmm. Nobody got hurt. The house was fully involved. It could be seen for miles sure. when we got the call. Nobody lived there. Right, no safety. So, that. you know, there was no life safe, life risk, life at risk. And But that's an example. And I didn't make the training, so I failed to do my job. Yeah, training is so important. Um, and not only, uh, like, organized training, but I, uh, uh, the current fire chief uh, over at Mount Vernon, Wes Dixon, he's a friend of mine, and I always looked up to him. And I, it's just weird. Somebody could say something offhand, and you'll remember it the rest of your life. I remember he told me, um, he said, uh, you know, you don't have to drive so fast. I, I never drove fast. I never, he wasn't speaking to me. Trust me, anybody that knows me knows I don't drive it fast. But uh, he says, you know, you don't have to drive that fast. He said, because if you know where everything is on the truck, he says, uh, when you get there and you get off the truck and grab exactly what you need, you'll get to the door about the same time as the person who has to open up four or five doors and figure out where the equipment is. And it's just something I've thought of. It's like if you know your job, you know, everything, like the speed and all that, it will come, right. you know. In, in a volunteer fire department, knowing where the equipment is is harder than sure. in a career department. Your, career your department, cabinets are stuffed full of right. equipment. Ours are empty. They're empty, but you're also only on one truck. Right. And 
you know, and, and so if you're riding on the engine today, you need to know where all that stuff. You're riding on the rescue tomorrow, you got to know where all that stuff is. We used to do inventory quizzes. We'd put sure. ten, 10 things off of a truck and say, where are they? So that way you could do that. Uh, I actually take pictures. For me, I take pictures of the compartments with the doors open so I then can study whenever I want to study, sure. refresh my oh, memory. That's a good idea. Because it is, it is important. Uh, you've seen that where you tell a guy go get a K-12 saw and he opens <laughs> up eight compartment doors. Right. And there's only eight compartment doors to open. Right. And he found it on the last one. Yeah. And it's like, how much time did you waste there? Right. But those are the basic, you know, we get so worried. And many times in the fire service, we want to have advanced training. Sure. But it's really about fundamentals. The basic training. Fundamentals. Yeah, know, the know, fundamentals. Your, know your territory. Yeah. Know your truck. When you should turn left, when you should turn right, right. Where, your, where the equipment is, how to operate that equipment, you know, how to operate the thermal imaging camera, sure. how to start the K-12. problem is if you don't know the fundamentals, when that new electronic thing dies, you're done. Right. Like that's your crutch. Absolutely. And, yeah. and, and we're terrible about it at, at you know, some of the bigger cities now with the computer um, uh, MCT programs where it's like giving you turn-by-turn turn directions, right. and then like, oh, it's down. <laughs> you're sitting up there like, uh, okay. And you're going to your second due district. That's right. That's district. right. Yeah, you're going across town to right. some other thing, yeah. and you're like, well, if it's a big fire, we'll see it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, but, yeah, but it, it is about the basic training or the fundamental training because we can have advanced, you know, like Dennis Compton, who's the fire chief in Mesa, Arizona, I was talking to him one day about, uh, he said, you guys are having an advanced search and rescue class. What's that about? I said, well, it's, it's about search techniques and this and that, and, you know, right search, right-hand search, left-hand search. He goes, that's basic search. Mm-hmm. I said, yeah, but it sells better if you call it advanced. Yeah, that's right. You know, that's right. Maybe we'll, we'll smoke it up where you don't do that in basic training. He says, and his point was, all training is fundamental. Mm-hmm. It's basic. If you don't do that, doesn't matter. You can come in this building, and if you don't know, don't bring a tick with you, you may fall through a hole in the floor. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you don't you, you don't keep your right arm attached to the wall as you go through out of mm-hmm. out of building. You're not going to find your way back out. Do you ever think? I tell people this: um, when you're involved in something, you kind of lose perspective, right? I I tell people, and I I know this sounds like self congratulatory or not. I don't mean it like that, but like every job's probably amazing in its own way, but like. Think about, you know, your house is on fire. And we always hear this. You got here so quick. Think about it. You can have this many people here, this many trucks here. I've tapped into an underground water supply. I've got within minutes. I mean, right. a couple of minutes, three, four minutes. I mean, it's it's actually pretty amazing, you know. You know, and I, once again, I know that I don't want to sound like, oh, we do a great job. But, you know, really when you step back and there's a reason people say, wow, that was amazing, you right. know, what you guys did. Or, or you guys out in the county. You're bringing your own water. You're setting up dump tanks. You've designed trucks just for your district, like you said, the rear uh, suction. You know all these things that just work seamlessly. And you know, in your mind, you're like, "Well, this could have been better, and that could have been, and that could have been better." But then, you know, you 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 did an amazing job. Right. Like you said, maybe the house was fully involved, but you saved the barn, or you know, whatever yeah. it is. Firefighters need to realize when somebody praises you, accept their praise. Sure. Uh, a guy named Dennis Waitley who wrote the book New Psychology of Winning. Uh, makes that statement because they believe you earned their praise so when you go oh i was just doing my job you sort of you like discount them, them right you're, yeah you're making them feel you're belittling their compliment okay. to you 
And I, and I think he's exactly right because that's what firefighters say. Oh, we're just doing our job. Yeah, but it was pretty amazing. <laughs> and they're grateful for it, accept their praise and say, you're welcome. Right. You right. Know, what your mom and dad taught you. Somebody says, thank you. Say, you're welcome. Right. So what a great segue into training. You had a little bit to do with training in our state for a decade or so, right? I was very lucky in that uh, I met Mitch Daniels when he was in the White House Office of Management and Budget. I had a meeting with him, and um, he asked us, we were going to talk about the Assistant to Firefighter Grant Program, which he was opposed He was opposed to. He did not believe the federal government should be funding fire departments through grants. And uh, he wanted us to help him with the wildland fires because the federal government's checkbook opened up whenever uh, there's a wildland fire just money just went sure. nobody asked any questions and uh, we couldn't he wanted to know where there was waste at in the assistance to firefighter grant program and uh, randy brugerman the first vice president with me and the executive director with me and they all gave him the political answer and then it came to me and i said well sir buying a little volunteer fire department that makes a hundred runs a year a four hundred thousand dollar <laughs> fire truck seemed to be a waste of money to me when they could buy a $250,000 fire truck and do the same job. But he remembered that. Yeah. <laughs> he, when, so when he decided to run for governor, a guy named Roger Johnson was on his campaign staff, worked for Elkhart Brass, and uh, Roger and I talked about it. Uh, governor, da at that time, Mitch Daniels, mm -hmm. uh, had uh, promised that he would start a state fire training system. He would not, didn't say anything about a fire academy, but a training system. So... Um, when uh, Roger got to be the state fire marshal, he hauled me up to Indianapolis. I was already working for the state fire marshal, and he hauled me up to Indianapolis to be his project coordinator, and this was the project. So uh, Mitch Daniels, Governor Daniels at the time then said, uh, well, send me a plan. So, uh, so over a weekend, I wrote a plan, got it approved by the fire marshal, got it approved by the executive director. The fire marshal works for the executive director who works for the governor. So then it's like, okay, uh, the next weekend or the next week, we're going to take this over to the governor. So as we're walking over there, the executive director says, you're presenting this to the governor. I went, what? <laughs> no, no. He said, you know it better than anybody. And I went, oh, my gosh, here this little kid, I wasn't a kid, from Evansville, Indiana is going to present right. a paper to the governor. And uh, so the governor has a fairly large office. And so we moved from his desk to his big conference table. And as he's walking over to his conference table, he starts scratching his chin. This is one of the habits that he has that he, uh, is not, he does not really want to say what he's got to say. So he's just a little nervous. How the governor could be nervous? But, but it's, it's, one of, it's a signal, and it is true. It is true. And so we get over the table, and we sit down. I give whatever, three or four-minute briefing, and he goes, John, when I asked you to do this, I didn't know it would be this expensive. And I said, well, sir, I don't, I don't think it's expensive. He said, John, $40 million is a lot of money. I said, sir, I'm only asking for $4 million. So he had took my plan, which was to divide the state up into 10 districts at $4 oh. million a district. But oh. he read the plan. That was my point. Oh, there you he go. read it. And so and I And you should got, have said we could do it for 20. Yeah. <laughs> I'll cut it in half. We, did, we didn't get the 40 and we didn't get the four, but we got a million, then we got two million. And, you know, so we, we got money raised yeah. by, with the fireworks tax. So and, tell, us, uh, tell us what that did. The fireworks tax allowed us to, at the state level, to develop a system so that firefighters were trained consistently and 
instead of a haphazard approach that a rural firefighter had a little different training than an urban firefighter, and it's not about career volunteer. It well, is I can about, give you a great example. So okay. when I started before all this, I went to the Dance with the Devil class at, you know, New yeah, Albany Fire yeah. Department. I went to the right. Jasper Fire School, you know, and it was just departments would put on these uh, classes state would just independently, right? right? They would just, they would have instructor two threes. They would say, Hey, let's put on a class. Right. And so our job was to develop a system. So we formed, uh, districts, district fire training councils in each of the districts. We would allow them to have money to do training, to conduct training that we would pay the instructors, which in many cases in the volunteer world is the first time instructors were ever paid. Yeah. And, but then there's also standards. And then we looked, worked at the standards to ensure that, the standards were current, that they were relevant, and that they had a credential. So um, we did that. Then we started giving out grant money uh, to help build fire not build training centers or parts of training centers. Like here at Evansville, the classroom was paid for with grant money. The forced entry prop, the car fire prop were all paid for with grant money. Uh, we, we did about a million dollars a year in grant money as well. So I was pretty popular with fire departments yeah. that, uh, you know, I had money to give out, but there was a standard, you know, I, I wasn't the only one who made the decision on who gave out grant money, but I'm the one who went out and tell them, here's the kind of things we're looking for. We want certain basic kind of props. So you're working for the fire chief, or the, the state fire marshal in right. his office for training? Yes. Is that, okay. That's where he started the state fire training system. I was the director and I, have, I was the director for 15 years and, you know, I, very proud of what we did. Sure. Uh, we trained a lot of firefighters. We reduced injuries uh, to firefighters just because they had better training. We did a lot of training in, in rural areas that had not had quality training before that uh, maybe weren't even certified. You don't have to be a certified firefighter to be a firefighter in this state. You have to be trained under OSHA rules to the level of a mandatory firefighter, but you don't have to be certified. Right. That created a challenge in the first uh, first couple of years because we had a lot of people that were horrible at taking tests yeah. and uh, they would flunk the test. And if they flunked it three times, then they had to go back and do the class over again. And so uh, that created a lot of anguish and uh, confrontation that people were not happy with uh, testing, uh, not being open book. Again, when there was no consistency, sure. uh, we know that, that people cheated, I mean, you know, when I, the Board of Firefighting Personnel Standards Education is the one who wrote the standards and enforced the certification standards. And um, I asked for permission to audit classes. Had never been audited. In the 25 years the board had, it, had been in business, had never been audited. You mean you wanted to show up to the class? I or? wanted to audit the instructor. Yep. Okay. And what they taught and how they taught it and that sort of thing. The first five people that were audited was suspended three out of the five for lying, cheating, falsifying documents. Right. You know, then in the uh, end, it's not doing anybody any favors. No. And, it, and it, it came back to haunt people. I mean, I was involved in legal issues uh, because when somebody got hurt, you know, they hired a lawyer. The lawyer would come to the state, say, hey, what did you do? Uh, I remember this one where uh, the guy was a paramedic. He had one eye, a small career department, so everybody had to drive the truck. Well, the fire chief said you had to have two good eyes to drive a fire truck. This guy didn't believe it. He hired a lawyer. The lawyer came and talked to me, and we went and looked at his, his certification training. Oh, my. 
I'm just shaking my head. All the skills were done for Firefighter 1 on the same day. <laughs> that takes a minimum of 50 hours to do those skills. That doesn't happen in one day. Right. But the lead evaluator signed them in one day. Yeah. So that guy got fired for, uh, you know, because he wasn't certified appropriately. So he, he didn't get to, he, he lost his job. And the lead evaluator lost his certification. But it's like that's an example of what, of what happened before the system was put in place that said, you can't do that, people. You can't fake skills. Right. You can't help a student pass a test. You're not helping anybody, not right. even helping them. When they get hurt right. and or killed, you don't want those lawyers to talk to you. I mean, I was deposed several times. It's not about going to court. I never went to court because most of the time the insurance companies go, well, if we go to court and we put that guy on the witness stand, he's right. an idiot. <laughs> we're going to lose, so we're going to negotiate right. an amount. And, you know, the state, the state is concerned about being sued, but they have lawyers yeah. on staff. It's not a major right. deal. So, uh, but, so the system improved the delivery of training, the quality of training. And that's really what I wanted. I, I, I didn't want to make it harder. But if you wore the certification badge of Firefighter 1, if you're in the Indianapolis Fire Department or you're in Hope, Indiana, it should mean that you took the similar class. I didn't say the same, right. but similar. And by similar, I mean that you, know, that you were tested to, to a similar standard, uh, both written and, co or in, uh, and the skills test, uh, versus you just pencil it. Yeah, because if you do a class specific to the teeny little department you're on, you get the cert. Next thing you know, your life moves along, and you're now hired at such and such department. They're like, oh, you're a hazmat tech? Well, great. We can put you on our hazmat team. Right. <laughs> well, there was a guy that got certified in swift water rescue that can't swim. Oh. And I found, you know, I got a complaint on it. Wouldn't investigate him. Yep, sure enough, the guy said, I never got in the water. You never got in the water? Right. And this lead evaluator signed off on you could do those skills. But he had that badge, so to speak, to tang right. on his arm. Right. And that, that's, that's an embarrassment to him as well as to the firefighters. Sure. You, you don't want that. When you stand in line, all with the similar badge or same badge on, it says certification level. It should mean the same thing. Right. That's all right. <laughs> um. So, how much travel did you have to do in that job? Were you traveling all over the state? Oh yeah, that was one of the things I asked the governor when I when he asked me or offered a job to me. I said, "Do I have to be in the office?" He said, "What do you mean?" I said, "How about three days a week?" He goes, "Yeah, that'd be good." Well. It really wasn't three days a week. Yeah. Uh, but I, but yes, I would do four to five thousand miles a month. Oh wow. I, I you know, the fire marshal was supportive. Roger Johnson when he was fire marshal, and then Jim Greeson when he became fire marshal were very supportive, and they liked going too. So if I got invited and you know they were available, they would go along. And, so are uh, you? Uh, what were you doing then? Auditing things, or actually teaching classes, or just PR, public okay. relations. Okay. And uh, you know, going out just selling the product. Yeah. Tell them what we're trying to do, help them understand what the system is, helping instructors understand certification. Because one of the sad part is that we were teaching instruct or certifying instructors, but we weren't teaching them how to help people get certified. Oh, okay. What the rules were. So we ended up adding questions on the test and the written test about the rules. So you had to know the rules, some okay. of the rules about how to get somebody. So you certified. helped develop tests as well. Yep. Okay. We develop test questions. Uh, the the certification test questions, we bought the test questions. 
by a professional testing company. Mm -hmm. But then they were validated by three firefighters, individuals. And all it took was one of those three firefighters to say, that question is bad. And we took it out. Okay. So then we had to have a bank of questions that were three times the number of questions on the test. So if the questions, the test was three, 100 questions, we had to have 300 in the bank. Then we would rank those questions, high, medium, or low priority. Because how hose is constructed is really not a high priority test question. Right. But how do you couple a hose might be a medium level test question. How do you pull a, a pre-connect off of a truck could be a high level question. Okay. And so we would rank those questions and then we would tell, when then we asked fire chiefs, so how many high level questions do you want, medium and low, percentage wise? So it, most of the time it was like 75, 20 and five. Okay. High priority 75, 20 medium and 5% low. And then our testing system would allow us to select those. Okay. So. You know, it was, so again, it was kind of amazing at the end of the, your your tenure in doing that. If you reflect back at what it was before, I mean, there's there's vast differences. Oh, absolutely, vast differences. <laughs> but one, I think certification is more valued yeah. now because you earned it, and the firefighter knew that the instructor was taking shortcuts. They knew that they they could see them sign the papers that they didn't sign off on. Right. So it it wasn't like it was a secret, and. But yet you didn't have the that firefighter didn't have the guts to say, you didn't train me on that, right? And because that would stir the pot. Yeah, give me the cert. Yeah, you know that was what. <laughs> well, everybody else got it that way, so why should I be any different? So right. I I think about the credibility and the value of the certification. Sure. And 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 it and it's not even volunteer. I would say this that um, during you know, we'll say ten years ago when they were laying off firefighters in a couple cities in the state. Uh, one fire department in particular, won't name them, uh, they decided to hire lateral firefighters. So if you're already certified mm -hmm. and you'd already been hired by a fire department, which means you were approved for the pe uh, pension system, mm -hmm. all this stuff, then this city would hire you directly. And uh, after the first 10 people, they told me, we'll never do this again. Oh, really? Because their training sucked. <laughs> and that's like, wow. And it just reinforced what we were trying to do to make sure that you're not you're not just getting this cert because you showed up and you're breathing. Right. You get it because you earned it. Sure. So where does that take you? Once that that the uh, season of your life has passed, you're no longer working. It takes uh, me to retirement. Your retirement. So tell me, tell me. Take, but you're not retired. Well, <laughs> you know what it took me was to come home and eat dinner with my wife more in the first six months than we did in the previous twenty three yeah. years. Okay. And we joke about that, and uh, because I was never home. Uh, literally, when I was working, you know, I stayed in Indianapolis. Uh, there was only one time I didn't come home for three weeks. I would usually come home at least for the weekends. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of meetings on weekends and things like that, different things. Uh, but then I retired and uh, got job offers the next day. Yeah. And so I do a lot of writing. Uh, just finished the, the Yellow Ribbon Report for the National Association of Fire Chiefs on behavioral wellness. Just finished the Lavender Ribbon Report on uh, reducing occupational cancer, uh, two big things I'm very proud of. I'm not the only one that did it, but I'm the one in charge of it. What's, the, what's the cancer risk for a firefighter compared to well, the general public? The, uh, the number one killer of firefighters used to be cardiac arrest. Yeah, that's what I thought it was. The number one killer of firefighters today is cancer. No kidding. The number two killer of firefighters today is suicide. Wow. And now we get I was way off. I literally just quoted that. Uh, I was working out the other day, and somebody said, oh, you're working out? And I said, yeah, you know the number one 
uh, killer of firefighters is heart attack, and the number two is falls. And uh, apparently, I was wrong. Cardiac is third. Okay. And cardiac is in in the line is is more in the traditional line of duty, but cancer is now becoming sure. a line of duty death as well. And uh, suicide is still one of those dirty little secrets. Yeah. That uh, you know, and you guys at the Ezra Fire Department have experienced two suicides. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we never know why. That's the sad part. Um, when we did the first Yellow Room report, which was like five years ago, I, I, I was in a room full of PhDers, and I'm the dumbest guy in the room. <laughs> and I'm the one supposed to take what they say and write it. <laughs> right. And uh, so then we just updated it. Didn't have quite as many PhDers involved in this one. But you got to have smart people to sure. do this. But the behavioral wellness issue is that uh, we got to quit ignoring it. You will see, you can see, I, I always thought suicide was an emotional thing. It is emotional, but it's not an instantaneous emotional thing. Most suicide, many suicides have four steps. You think about it, you plan it, you practice it, well, you get supplies in between there, and you do it. And I went, really? And so it occurs over time. Yeah, it's not like a spur of the moment. Right. Now, there are spur of the moments. Sure. You know, German Township had one. A guy, well, I say he had one. He got a divorce, came home, set his house on fire, and then went out in the barn and shot himself. Yeah. Okay. I'm sure he thought about it. He probably already had the guns. Right. So he'd have to do a lot of planning. But when you look at the suicide people that I know of, that I've known a little closer, um, there are signals. And, yeah. you know, their behavior changes. Their attitude changes. Their appearance changes. They're, they might have been a nice dresser, and now they're a sloppy dresser. Um, but most time, we ignore those things. Or I notice that you're you're behaving different, but I don't have the guts to say, "Yeah, Patrick, what's going on? What is going on with you?" Yeah. Nothing. No, Patrick. Something's going on with you. I see a change in you. We're not going to get up from this table until you tell me what's going on. Right. And most firefighters, they don't want to confront their friends because you won't be my friend. Well, you you guys, well, I know this is going to more than just Evansville. But, sure. Um, I'm on the phone one day with a person on the Evansville Fire Department who used suicide, used the word suicide in 17 minutes, seven times. Okay. I called up his friend. Oh, yeah, he talks about it all the time. I go, what are you doing about it? Nothing. I said, I wasn't here. I said, I'm coming home. We're going to do an intervention. So I called his pastor. I said, we're doing an intervention. Yeah. We're going to his house. Six months later, called me up, wanted to have breakfast, thanked me. He said, I had no idea where I was at. Yeah. I had no idea what I was going to do. But it's like his friend, oh, yeah, he talks about it, and ignored it. We don't know that. One of, one of my friends... Calls me up, getting divorced. Catholic, thought he had a great marriage, two kids, everything's hunky-dory. Finds out that, you know, she's messing around on him, wants a divorce. I went to his house. I said, give me all your guns. No, no, give me all your guns. I want all of them. I want the ones in the case. I want the <laughs> ones in the bedroom. I want them all. Yeah. I got them all. I kept them for six months. A year later, he thanked me. He yeah. said, I don't know what I would have done. I mean, you know, and it, and you, 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 people say, well, I don't want to lose their friendship. Well, you want to lose their life? Right. I don't care if you get ticked off at me. When we did that intervention, I don't care. 
Well, what's that? Uh, gosh, I hope I got this number right. Um, there's this project for veterans. I think it's 22. That's what they call it. Uh, it's like the 22 project. I think okay. like 22 veterans a day commit suicide. Oh, yeah. Um, it's more, more have committed suicide than have died in, in combat sure. um, since 9-11. And it's, I don't want to say the same thing in the fire department, but it is kind of the same thing. And I've actually talked on, on the podcast a couple times with guys, you know, that, you know, 30, 40 years on. And I say, don't you think it changes you? And absolutely. I mean, you, it's, it's inconceivable to think that you can go to, um, you know, they always say the worst day in somebody's life or a horrible scene. I mean, you, you know, fill in the blank, you know, you can, if you can imagine it, firefighters have seen it and dealt with it. And to think that you could do that day or, you know, every week or every month, whatever it is on some kind of repetition and that it won't change you is ridiculous. (coughs) Absolutely. Every run we make changes us. And yeah, I, I said, I'm sorry to cut you off, but I said, uh, I think it was another podcast. I said there was a run I made as a volunteer where a lady and two kids died in a car wreck. And every day I drive by the cross and I think if I'm, I hope that brings peace to the family because it sure doesn't to me because right. every single day I drive by it, I vividly remember everything about that call. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm the same way. We had a call at a uh, motor vehicle accident at Diamond in 65 here. And it was a, um, a baby was in, uh, there's high speed uh, impacts at that intersection and people run a red light. So it's not like doing 10 miles an hour. So this one car was thrown back about, I'll say 60, 80 feet back from the intersection. Oh, wow. And uh, I just live on Detroit Road, so I'm the first one there. And I, I have no idea how I got that car seat out of the back seat, but when I crawled in the back seat, I saw my grandson. Yeah. It wasn't my grandson, right. but it was him. Right. And still today, sure. it, still, it still impacts me today. So I was actually going to Florida the next day for a conference. So I get a phone call, <laughs> and um, this guy says, the baby was released from the hospital. I go, no way. Yep, baby was released from the hospital. This was an AMR dispatcher. Yeah. I said, not true. Calls me back a couple of hours later. Goes, yep, the baby was released from the hospital to the coroner. Oh, I go, I knew this baby didn't yeah. wasn't going to make it. Right. And so you know, not only did I have the scene, then you had the oh, hallelujah. Right. And it's, you know, even though you know it's not, and uh, so that I mean, still impacts me today, and that's probably twenty years later. Right. Well, that's um, uh, you know, I, I guess better late than never, but, you know, to start to address, as you're saying, you're doing some of these reports, and hopefully that, you know, some good come of that. Yeah, we, we, we just got to quit sticking our head in the sand. The, you know, the military has really done a lot. I mean, back in World War One, it was shell shock and, you know, uh, you know, all these different things, and nobody talked about it, and these people just killed themselves. Yeah. Well, when you look at the military, the thing that what I've read, I had a high lottery number, so I didn't have to worry about going to Vietnam, but... Um, you look at um, the guy, the sniper, Chris. Chris Kyle. Chris Kyle. Yeah. And he could be over there aiming at a child at 10 o'clock today. Yeah. And in his living room at 10 o'clock tomorrow. Right. At home. Yeah. There's no time to decompress. Yeah, I've read about that, how they say, like, when the troops travel by ship and you'd have a month kind of between the two. And that's why, um, you know, I was in the Air Force, and they talk about some of the some of the worst cases were pilots um, in World War II that were stationed in England at the very beginning. They'd go do these bomber raids or whatever, and then they're back 
like it's almost like nothing happened. Right. And, right. You know, there's this dichotomy in their life. And it's the same thing that happens in the fire department. Yeah, absolutely. You go home to your family, and they're like, what's going on? And you're like, well, you have no idea, right. and I don't really want to talk about it. In the career world, you go back and hopefully you talk about it, the good and the bad. But in the volunteer world, they go home. They may not see them for a week or two weeks. Right. So you have no idea. So uh, if, you know, the, the thing is that you have to have somebody who cares <clears throat> enough to make that phone call. I had a good, good friend of mine named Larry Curl, fire chief at Wayne Township, Indianapolis, had a motor, had a fire truck flip over and a, and a, a guy die. Well, Larry and I would talk once or twice a week, but I didn't call him after this death for like 30 days. And then I called him up and I said, "Young man, I'm sorry I didn't call you, but I didn't know what to say." And he said, "Next time, call. Yeah. If I don't want to talk, I won't talk." Yeah. And that was a, that's what changed my attitude. Sure. You know, I, I called a guy the other day, and uh, 22 seconds. That's all he wanted to talk. I couldn't get him to open up, couldn't get him to say anything. So, you know, I'll wait a couple of weeks and I'll try again. Uh, and maybe I'll get him to talk for two minutes. But maybe I'll get him to talk for 20 minutes yeah. uh, or 22 seconds. But, you know, the point is I'm concerned about him. And I don't, I don't tell anybody who I'm calling. I don't, you know, it's, it's not about bragging. That's, that's the thing that will get you yeah. uh, no credibility. Yeah. So, you know, if you go around and say, oh, yeah, I talked to so-and-so right. and he did this and he did that. Um, so I can, uh, <laughs> I've always, I was telling Kenny Guest stories, but Kenny Guess he said that when this, all this stuff came about, the peer support and all this stuff, uh, he was a battalion chief and he said he was just ordered. He was the, he was going to be on that. Right. And he's like, I hadn't, I didn't want to do this. And, uh, he said he went, I don't even know where he went to another volunteer department where they were going to have the meeting or whatever. And he left there and he called the chief and he says, well, they said, I got to have two things. Uh, the ability to keep a secret and compassion. I have neither one of those things, <laughs> so I request to be off of this team. <laughs> <laughs> That's Kenny Guess. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. But see, he would have been a good one. He he would he, he would have, he would have made a good peer counselor. Yeah, because he would have listened. Yeah, and he'd have been sincere. Now, whether he could keep a secret, that's probably true. Right, he could, but it is tough. Yeah, it, but it's very tough. But you know what? I uh, it, it, it takes a special person to do that, and and in the Career world, it's one of the things we say in this new report is that we didn't say in the first report is you got to involve the spouses and the kids, career and volunteer, yeah. because it's impacting them. You go home uh, because you're impacted, you drink more, or you don't do anything around the house, or you become abusive mm -hmm. verbally or physically. Uh, you're not nice to your kids. You don't want to do things with your kids. All those things, you got to have somebody who cares enough to say, would that the spouse would feel comfortable enough yeah. to call you up and say, Patrick, yeah, I, something's going on with Jimmy. Yeah, and that is, you know, as a career guy, that's uh, a little bit easier because you spend so much time with each other, and a lot of times your COVID's been crazy. You know, your yeah. family can't come in, but most of the time, you know, people's family kind of come in here and there, and Once they they while. know the crew a little bit. I mean, you know, you might get together here and there, but um, well, you're are you married? Yeah. So your, yep. your spouse probably knows your best friend that's on the fire department. Yeah. So if there was something going on with you, she would probably feel a little comfortable calling your best friend sure. up going, What's going on? You know, Patrick's been drinking a lot lately. Right. Staying yeah. out in the garage. Right. You know, then, yeah, what's going on? I mean, that, that's the biggest thing is don't ask somebody how they're feeling because they'll say, all right, fine. Yeah. What's going on? Well, there's a stigma, too. Um, and, you know, and when I was in the military over uh, 20 years ago now, 
but uh, you know PTSD they realize that you know a lot of people have that and it's I just sit back and listen a lot you know in the firehouse and right. people talk like it's it's now making its way through the firehouse right like people are saying that's a real thing right. you know it's affecting people but still it has a stigma it's yeah. like an embarrassment well you know mental illness has a stigma well how can you be mentally ill I, I'm not Right. <laughs> no, I've done as much. I've as made. Can. I tell you, I made. You can make a run, and I remember years ago when I was in another department, uh, and there was two of us. We made a run on a lady who died in church. She had a. She had an aneurysm. We rode to the hospital, and uh, my captain, it bothered him. And it, I was young. I was like twenty three, you know. And I, he said, "Oh, that was crazy." She was talking to us. I'm like, "Yep, yep, crazy, whatever." You know. And then it, I've kind of been realizing, like, he goes, "No, she was talking. She just really bothered me, you know, whatever." And it's like, "Oh, okay." Well, I, I didn't even recognize. You know that, and so then you know we're just talking about it. But it really bothered him that she was talked to, seemed like a nice lady, and then you know she died. It didn't bother me at all. Right. And there's runs that will affect people differently, and they were there at the same the same right. run. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's transition into your. I want I want to talk about your your book. I, t- I interviewed um, uh, Johnny Meyer, and a great, of course, a great friend of the Evansville Fire Department. And um, tell us about the book you guys or you you took all the pictures. Oh, the photo book. Yeah, and they, they yeah. got distributed to the, the houses. And yeah, well, we There's sell a ton it, of pictures yeah. in there. Yeah. We, uh, you know, I, since I'm taking pictures for the other fire department, I take a lot of pictures. It's like, okay, let's make a book. So that's like my f- fifth book. Okay. Did three other books, did a Fire Ops 101 book, and then did this book last year, and then we'll be doing another book okay. in 2022. And it's... The spouses probably like the pictures as much as yeah. anybody, but they get to see their husbands doing things and social media, that sure. sort of thing. So, but it's it's a permanent record. Yeah, you know, there's if you don't record it some way somehow, just like your interviews yeah. with Joe Bassmar, Kenny Guest. Yeah, there's some history there. Sure, absolutely. That uh, you know that that's recorded for future. I just read uh, where somebody found an El- a, a television station in Elkhart where they had hundreds and hundreds of tapes that they were going to throw away. Well, they bring, brought them down here to the IU Historical Society, and they have a lot of Ryan White interview, oh. uh, raw tapes. Really? Yeah. Okay. And it's in the paper today. Okay. And uh, it's like, wow, you know, that's that's the history yeah. for television news. Well, it's the same thing with the fire department, is that I like take first of all, when by the time I get to most fires, the fire is pretty well knocked down. I think most firefighters would disagree with you. I know they do. <laughs> but, uh, I always tell them. There's rumors that have been circling. Ping, ping my phone. Ping my phone. I'm not worried in the least little bit. But even like the other night on Delaware Street, where three houses are involved, I'm not. I'm leaving the house when they give the 10 minute benchmark. But Delaware Street's only like three miles from my house, so I got there pretty quick. Uh, but uh, well, it's it's um, it's personality shots is what I do. Is that you know? So I get pictures of the guys that you know they can have. I I, I give away a lot of pictures too. Yeah, I um, I just really like people that like what they do. It's it's interesting to me. Um, it, well, let me say it the other way. It's not interesting for me to talk with someone who does a job they hate. Oh right. I mean that's a, that's unfortunate for them and everybody around them. Um, but you obviously love the fire service, right? Um, Tim Crock loves the fire service. You know, when I was interviewing him, um, he said something about retirement I said well we both know that you still want to be on the job he goes I do and when they open up that go home at night job (laughs) and still be in operations I'd love to have it Uh, but there becomes a point where you're 
transitioning to different roles, you know, and it's, it's a hard job to do that uh, to some degree later in life because the actual job is very a physical job. Right. Um, but you've found kind of a niche as you're now the official photographer, right, of right. the Evansville Fire Department. I have, I have ID <laughs> and uh, vest and that sort of stuff. And, and I'm still involved at German Township. Yeah. I, I will help them do training, mm-hmm. uh, that sort of thing. But, but it, it's for me, when I came back, when I came home four years ago, I made them buy me extrication gear, which is not suitable for interior sure, structural firefighting. lightweight stuff. I don't want to go inside, and if I have to go inside, it's going to be a really bad day. Right. That there's, that there's nobody there but me. So I jokingly say, I will show up to operate your pump, or if you need somebody to be sure. command or an operations sector or something like that, I'll do that. Well, the young guys love it because they're driving the truck. They hear me going in yeah. and out. They know... I'll go take a set of pictures, and I'll come back. You get dressed, the driver, and then you get to go fight fire. So right. they love it. Yeah. So they don't have to stand there and operate the pump, which for a young guy is pretty sure. boring. Sure, absolutely. Uh, but then Ev, the Chief Connolly and uh, Chief Larson uh, said something about making me like the official Evansville Fire Department photographer. Yeah. So we have a written agreement that the city signed off on, the lawyers signed off on. The biggest thing for me was that I still own the pictures, Evansville can have full access to them for no charge, mm-hmm. but I can own the pictures. Sure. That you know, if I get that Pulitzer Prize winning yeah, shot, there you go. That you never know. Yeah. That uh, you know that I own it, and so and then and then I also have permission to, to create the books and sell the pictures and that mm-hmm. sort of thing. And I don't. If I give you a picture, like if I showed up at 15s tomorrow and here's here's a picture for All you, right. that's a gift. Don't ask me how much do you owe me. Because it's a gift from yeah. me to you. Okay. But if you called me up and said, hey, can I have a 8.5 by 11? Right. I'm going to charge you 7 bucks for right. that print. Yeah, it costs you. So, you know, it's so it's not like I'm going around giving pictures up and say, well, that's 10 bucks for that picture. Right. No. <laughs> and, uh, so, but it's a gift. No, and, that's cool. I, I have enjoyed the books um, and looking through well, them, and you. it's and fun. You know, well, buy them. <laughs> but, the, you know, the books is uh, is all done by me. That's why I, I learned how to do that kind of stuff. So, yeah. And, and um, like, printed by a local graphics company here that prints them for us. Okay. So it's not, you know, the first three books I did, I did with Apple Books, and they're, they're like this thick, and they were 50 bucks a piece. Well, this book, last yeah. one was like that thick, and it was 50 bucks. Yeah. And that's like five years later, so it's like I'm getting a better deal. Yeah. And, cool. uh, and, you know, I, I think I ordered 100 books to start with for this last one, and so we sold all those and ordered a few more. Cool. And then Johnny Meyer bought one for each station, yeah. the mayor, and that sort of thing. The thing that we'll get on this book that will be different is I'll be able to put your name on the, on the book. So it doesn't cost yeah, you yeah, anything. Yeah. Yeah, cost me like a dollar to get well, your each name. Well, each firehouse got one with that firehouse yeah, on the front, right. the name. And that was something Johnny did. So I said, okay, so that'll help personalize them. Well, how cool is that? Like I said, one of my big regrets is I didn't get to interview Kenny Guest, but he's, he had that book. Right. It's fantastic. Yeah. The history. Time uh, in vain. Time served, not time in served, vain. Time served, not or, in vain. Yeah, yeah. That's it. Yeah. Fantastic. So last words. What do you think? Anything? Well, I th- yeah, I, I think uh, a lot of things. That's part of my problem. <laughs> <laughs> I have, I'm kind of the same way. That's why I have a podcast. I, right? have, uh, I have so many things on my plate. I have so many articles that are like halfway done. Uh, I read too much. Uh, I'm going to start. I'll have a second book out by February. Printed book. And probably the photo book for 2021 on Evansville will come out February or March. And, uh, but I, I think the firefighters have a great future. 
Yeah. Career volunteer. I do not believe the volunteer fire service is dying like many national well, it, leaders say. Well, it really can't. It's changing. Yeah. And if you want if you want to still operate your fire department like Benjamin Franklin did in 1736, you are not going to meet the needs today. Right. So we have to transition to different. And by different, I do mean some kind of compensation. If you're asking a guy to spend yeah. 8 to 10 hours a week or a gal yeah. to do 8 to 10 hours a week at the fire department, that's a pretty good part-time right. job. Yeah. And so... Uh, but then we also have to be smarter in the volunteer world that we don't waste their time. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, I know one, one fire department has paid staff on duty and two of their fire stations, but he still wakes up 60 pagers every night when they get a call. Yeah. <laughs> you don't need the right. volunteers to respond for a basic medical call, but you're still waking them up. Right. That's that. So we got to change that kind of stuff. The career fire service, uh, I, again, I think it's about reimagining. They're, the public's going to want more out of career firefighters than what they think they're getting today. We are not, both career and volunteer, we're not good at selling our product. Yeah. What is our product? Most people won't even know. Well, I told you that we hate change, and I remember when I was in the Recruit Academy, and well, like I told you about your green truck, <laughs> one of the instructors said, we really should be called emergency services. This is not the fire department. And everybody just cringes like, I don't want to tell people I work for the emergency services or, you know, something like that. It's but it's like, sexy, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, uh, you know, the firefighting is not majority of what we do. Nope. It's not. And it's not. It's going to get worse. Right. Uh, we're going to be asked. I mean, COVID brings up several things that we, we had to look at different things to do. We spend more money protecting our firefighters. Um uh, reducing the risk of firefighters, not sending as many people in. I yeah. think it's going to be more dangerous for firefighters. Oh, it definitely is. I tell, yeah. uh, I tell volunteers, do not, I repeat, do not go in a house by yourself. Yeah, they're flashing so much quicker. And and then in a career, and then so when you do go in, the one goes in and talks to the patient, and the other one turns around the other way and looks at their back. Because you have no idea what the people are doing in that right, house. Right. And they may have a baseball bat, may have a gun. They hear you touch their kid, the kid screams, and next thing you know, they're coming in the room after you. Sure. And it's, so it's much more dangerous for firefighters. So we're going to have to get smarter in how we manage that risk. Yeah. And I, you know, I don't care if it's 3 o'clock in the morning and they say they're having a heart attack. Wait for your partner to get there. In the volunteer world, another person responded sure. from home or whatever. And the career guys leave somebody outside. Leave somebody outside the room where you're doing the treatment. Right. Because people are crazy today. Yeah. And they do things for whatever reason. So I think that. I think we're going to have to reimagine. I have uh, I've written a paper that I'm we're working through the International Association of Fire Chiefs on what if. You know, fire chiefs say, I need more people. I need more money. I need this. I need that. Well, how much? How much more money do you need? How many more people do you need? We can't answer that question. But we need more. <laughs> well, how much more? Right. And I want to. I want. I want to challenge. I want a think tank of really smart people to come together and say, we can answer that question. So if we hire twelve more firefighters in Evansville, fourteen, I should say, to staff another station or another company, what's the end result? What's right. the outcome? How many lives will we impact? Will we save? It's not always about saving lives. It's about quality of life. How do we impact their quality of life? And so, you know, and it's like, what if, what if we did say every company has to, 
and this comes out of Anne Arundel County, uh, uh, Maryland, the company officer has to attend a community meeting every month in their district and file a report with the fire chief's office. Yeah. That's making that captain look for meetings in their district and the crew goes with them, mm -hmm. half hour, go in, say hi, answer some questions, hang around for a few minutes and leave. Right. What's the payoff for that? Right. Does somebody go home and check the battery in their smoke detector? Do they go home and put a battery in their smoke detector? We, we don't know. Right. But we know the firefighters inside a fire station don't have as much impact as they do outside the fire station. Right. So that's one of the things about my what if or reimagining the fire department. And I realize if you have a company that's making 12 to 14 runs a day, sure. they're not going to be making those PR visits. Right. But when you have a company that's making two or three runs a day, they right. could get those PR visits right. hung in the stuck stuck in the middle somewhere. Well, we do, you know, and um, we would do the before the lockdown and everything. I mean, we would do school tours and this tour, and we would get called for the first day of school. We would take the truck down, you know, all those things, and you know, guys kind of roll their eyes sometimes. But you know, we've had some times uh, where budgets have been constrained, and there's been um, different ideas floated up, and the community has stepped up and said, "No, I don't want this house to close," and "No, I don't want mm -hmm. to lose that." And so they do kind of have your back because right. they're the ultimate consumer. And they're the ones that put the leaders in. Well, in classes, when I'm talking to the leaders, I ask them the question, who has the power in your community? Well, the mayor. Nope. Right. The council. Nope. Who has the power in your community? I, and I, I say, I don't, I don't know the answer to the question, but I'll tell you this. It could be the Chamber of Commerce. It could be churches. It could be schools. Those are three large groups of people that have informal power to influence the future of the fire department. Right. Who's the most powerful person in the state of Indiana? They say the governor. I will tell you no. It's the state fire marshal. The state fire marshal approves the buildings that are built today that we will be dealing with for 50 years from now. Yeah. If he approves a good building, we won't have so much to deal with. But if he approves a building that doesn't meet the codes, we could have problems 50 years from now. So it's like influence. It's all, John Maxwell said it. It's all about influence. Nothing more, nothing less. Yeah. So by, by the firefighters, career and volunteer, getting outside the fire station, fire chiefs getting out from behind their desk, we will influence our future by interacting with the public and with our firefighters. All right. Good way to stop. That's good. I like it. So, hey, thanks a lot for doing Thank this. You.